Welcome back to the Paris Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today I am hugely excited to have with us a little legend in table tennis, both Olympic and Paralympic, Melissa Tapper. Melissa is a three-time Paralympic table tennis player and a two-time Olympian, being the first Australian athlete to qualify for both Summer Olympic and Paralympic Games in 2016. And she is a silver medalist from Tokyo. So welcome to the podcast, Melissa. Thank you very much for having me, Liz. Uh, it's really cool that I can have someone of your calibre on, on the podcast. I'm super excited. So can you tell us a little bit about your background, your impairment and how you got into playing table tennis? Yeah, definitely. So when I was born, I was a little bit of a whopper of a baby. I was 11 pound two. And Ouch. yes, yes, quite large, but uh, spare a thought for my mother because mm. on her birthday, she ended up delivering me naturally. Oh. And yeah, as a result of that, plus my size, I got stuck. So mm. what they had to do was they pulled me by my right arm and that basically tore the nerves in between my neck and shoulder as they mm. were basically pulling to get me out. But my parents, I'm from a small town in southwest Victoria called Hamilton, mm-hmm. and basically they sort of explained to my parents that it was going to be all good, you know, it'll heal on its own. But I was about four months old and they realised I still had no use really of my right arm. It was just mm. hanging by its side. So ended up taking a trip to Melbourne, saw a specialist, and that's where they ended up discovering that I did indeed have a condition called brachial plexus. So mm-hmm. basically just the fancy word for saying those nerves had been torn. And yeah, so from then on, I started having several operations to try and, I guess, improve my mobility and function of my right arm. So I guess, yeah, from a from the get-go, I sort of then had to learn to do things one-handed, left-handed, mm. but I, I've grown up in a, in a very, you know, loving, fantastic family with incredible friends. So whatever I was doing, I was trying to do the same as everyone else and mm-hmm. loved playing sport and I think that's where everything kind of kicked off. So primary school, I had a really awesome PE teacher and basically he acknowledged the fact that I did have a disability, yet he still encouraged me to give everything a go and try everything. And if I couldn't, would work on a way to try and be able to do everything wow. that everyone else was doing. So through that approach, I guess I did give everything a go, love sport, and then got into table tennis by accident just on a lunchtime lunchtime where we got to go off-site mm-hmm. and, and play a sport because I'd played all the others. So I thought, yep, table tennis sounds fun. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, like most people, when you first give something a go, you're usually pretty horrible at it. And I, <laughs> I definitely was. Didn't even know how to hold the bat. Barely could hit a ball. If I did, it would, you know, hit the back barrier. It would go under the table. But yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. And that was definitely where my table tennis sort of passion began to kick off slowly. Um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it happened overnight, but it was from that point onwards that I definitely kept on returning and I think the more you do something, obviously, the better you get. So, yeah, Yeah. a lot definitely grew from there. (laughs) Yeah. And so how old were you then? Yeah, I would have been around eight eight years old. Mm. And so you weren't a kid who grew up in, lots of kids in Australia had table tennis tables at home, 
you know, maybe down in a basement or in the garage. Weren't what are those kids <laughs> at that time? Oh well, my my parents actually. So I have an older brother and an older sister, mm-hmm. and our parents one year for Christmas at our holiday house gave gave us a table tennis table. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't actually say that that was really where I started playing because. I was quite young at that point and my brother and sister wouldn't let me play with them because I wasn't good enough. So, <laughs> so I definitely um, I definitely saw the table plenty of times in the garage set up, but yep. it was not really where I where I began to start. <laughs> oh wow, that's incredible. And so what's your classification? Yeah, so in table tennis there are 11 classes. Mm-hmm. Class 1 to class 5 are in wheelchairs. Class one being more severely, so more like legs and hands affected to mm-hmm. five with like less. And six to ten are the standing classes. So mm-hmm. I'm class ten. So I guess basically the least amount of disability affecting my movement. Mm-hmm. And class 11 is intellectual. So it took me quite a while to understand the whole concept around classification, but mm. um, yeah, now now that I do, I definitely have a, a bit more of a better understanding of it. But basically, I compete against other girls that have either a similar disability or they may be missing their limb, like an arm around the elbow, generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And how does your impairment impact on you when you play table tennis? Yeah. So for quite a long time growing up, I didn't really know how it impacted me if anything at all so when I used to play I used to like I felt like my movement and everything was quite good because mm-hmm. I don't believe my my legs are affected even though I had nerves taken out when I was younger I don't think that's affected any movement in my legs mm-hmm. but by accident in high school actually when I was preparing for my debutante ball believe mm-hmm. it or not um <laughs> I <laughs> I to dance with my partner I was struggling to hold my hand up my right hand up to be able to dance so I ended up getting a brace made for my right hand that would go underneath my glove and that then enabled my wrist to be stronger to be able to dance and I finished dead practice one night and ended up going straight to MSAC to do a training session and I had forgotten to take off the brace because it was sort of like at that point it was like taped to my hand mm-hmm. and so I just started training with it on and all of a sudden I began to realise that I felt a lot stronger with it on. Mm. And I think that was due to I could clench my fingers and make a fist, right. which then sort of gave me a bit more stability through my right arm, which then I felt like through my core was stronger. So when I was rotating and pushing off, I felt like I could get a lot more power mm. because previously without the brace, my arm is in a sense quite weak. I don't have much strength or movement at all through my wrist, fingers, forearm. So by mm-hmm. having the brace on, it kind of enabled me to have that. And I hadn't realised that I was lacking quite a lot in that department until this ended up happening. So wow. it was, yeah, a little bit by chance and then ended up going back and the the lady that makes my, my brace ended up developing one that could be more of a everyday kind of brace mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And so are you allowed to wear a brace in para table tennis or even in the Olympic table tennis events? 
Yes. So across across both is where I, I wear the brace. Mm-hmm. So for part of my classification, it's on my my card that I have. It's like an aid, I guess. Right. Yep. The, the mm-hmm. brace. Yep. The main exemption part, I guess, for paratail tennis in my class is I can't do what's considered a legal service. So that action, because I don't have the wrist movement yep. to serve legally, you need to have an open palm, your hand to start above the table and throw the ball up at least 15 centimetres. Right. So due to the fact I don't have that wrist function, yeah, I kind of cup the ball sideways and then throw it up. The only downside with that is I've had to work very, very hard on my service to try and mm. minimise the amount of, like, variation when I throw it up because yep. sometimes it might go left, it might go right, it might harder, come out. Harder, <laughs> yeah. yeah, harder to control the that consistency of your, of your ball yeah. toss. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and then I guess in terms of the able-bodied side, Either everyone's either aware of it or I speak with the umpires before the match begins so they're aware and they see the classification card. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. Cool. I don't know that there's many sports that would enable you to compete in both Olympic and Paralympic, is there? I believe all sports would from my understanding. Mm -hmm. I think it's just, yeah, it's a matter of I don't know how many para-athletes do also compete in the able-bodied side, I think that might be a bit more of it. But I'm mm. pretty sure if if you're able to, you you can. Yeah. Okay. It do, I guess just depends on how competitive you are. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So you're obviously a damn good table tennis player. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I go all right. <laughs> <laughs> so Millie, what would a typical training week look like for you at? at this point in time I know it's your your lighter part of the season you had a busy end of last year and you don't have major sort of events coming up until later this year so what would a typical training week look for like for you at the moment yeah so I guess this question the answer will change quite a bit dependent upon where I'm at so Mm. I guess in terms of a general sort of downtime week I'll still be doing five to six days a week on table and could could be two between two sessions one to two sessions a day on on the table mm-hmm. um but that was probably more when I was playing more full-time now now that I throw in a bit of extra work from the previous last year I aim to get a good three to four sessions a week on court mm-hmm. happening and for me I need to it's a lot more about you know training smart mm-hmm. and not harder I mean in a in a way yeah so yep. it's all about the quality over the quantity yeah 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 so if you feel like you're starting to lose concentration or you you're just not you you know particularly tired on one day then you might change that training so that you're actually you know making the most of it rather than just going oh well I've, I'll just push through and and keep going yeah. with this Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. I guess, you know, that's the luxury you have when you've been in the sport for such a long period of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And I yep. think I'm very lucky with the people that I have around me, with the coaches and training partners as well, that, yeah, everyone's sort of understanding across the board and everyone has really good ideas. So if 
someone's stuck with something, you know, or feeling a bit flat mm. or, yeah, whatever it may be, I feel like there's a really good group around that can help, you know, good. find the best solution for that for that day. And so do you also do other forms of fitness or strength and conditioning as well as your on-table work? Yeah, I do. I love I love moving, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess particularly through COVID, I really got into running. So mm-hmm. running is definitely a big part of my week now as well. I mean, I'm not breaking any records, but um, <laughs> I, I definitely enjoy getting out for a run. I do mm-hmm. gym over at the VIS two to three times a week and I do Pilates at home as well most days, uh-huh. which is something also I find really important for my body. Yep, yeah. And the running, do you feel as though that's helped in any way and if so, how in terms of your actual playing yeah, I think when I really started getting into it, I started noticing the difference in terms of my stamina across mm-hmm. training sessions. And I think for me, yeah, that was probably the biggest improvement I, I really felt from it as well was just my stamina to keep mm. sort of when I had a longer session, I was lasting through it better than I probably previously would. Mm. Okay, cool. And that helps in terms of total volume of training and quality of training, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The overall product was definitely getting better for me. Awesome. And what about your nutrition to support the training that you do? Do you, it, you know, how would you put a sort of typical day's food intake together? Yeah. So I guess, again, it depends on the different period of time that I'd be working in. So dependent on if I knew in a couple of months' time I had an important event or tournament coming up, I'd start my nutrition would be sort of based around fueling myself. I'd have a heavy, heavier training block. Mm-hmm. So ensuring that it, I, if dependent upon as well, if I was looking at my skin folds, whether I want needed to play around a little bit prior to the tournament, I have my own sort of range that I like to compete at. So mm-hmm. from a few months prior, I'll probably start looking at that and ensuring that I fuel myself to get through the heavier period of training while still checking in every couple of weeks just to make sure I'm on track building towards the tournament. Mm-hmm. And for me, I with my nutritionist at, at the VIS, it's always been emphasised on on balance with everything that I eat but also, you know, ensuring that I'm fueling myself to get through sessions without you know, getting hungry or um, mm. anything like that was always the most important part for me. Yeah. Um, but Because how long would you spend sometimes on, you know, at, actually on court in on a training court, session? Yeah, yeah that, that could be two to two and a half hours mm. in, in one hit. Yep. So I'm a big breakfast person. I absolutely mm-hmm. love breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like, and I'm also a creature of habit. So I just about, without fail, every morning have my overnight oats and mm-hmm. that's all completely loaded up for me. But then I'll go into training and then I'll also take things like dried fruit and nuts, just mm-hmm. as easy little snack things to have if I'm getting a little bit peckish yep. on the court as well, just to sort of see me through that, that sort of two, two and a half hour period. Mm-hmm. And then what about lunches? What what do they kind of look like for you? 
Yeah, and that that will just alternate between however I'm feeling. But I guess generally I still combine my big, you know, protein carbs and mm-hmm. fats into it. But whether it's a nice, dependent upon if I've cooked, I if I cook and I try to do a bit of batch cooking, so mm-hmm. it's a bit easier in terms of when you got to duck out the door for training. Yeah, um, but yeah, generally having like a with chicken rice and veggies or mm-hmm. that's a super easy one or a nice big wrap that I'll take as well. But, yeah, again, you know, the minute I finish training, I'm almost looking for the food to get straight back in again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. And and an evening meal, so they're usually, you know, a, a hot meal or sometimes they're a bit lighter? Yeah, g- generally a hot meal again. But then I guess sometimes in summer, like the warmer weather, I don't always necessarily feel so much for the warm meal as well. But generally I look to be at home to be able to have the time to cook. Mm -hmm. So it tends to be more of a a warmer meal um, each time, yeah. And in terms of your, you said that you have a an ideal range for your skin folds which you know in terms of body fat levels that you like to sit at for competition how do you go about if they're a little are they usually a little higher than where you want them to be or a little lower no they're generally higher than where than where i usually have them sitting in my sort of off comp periods yep. so when it when it comes to around that it's sort of just being a little bit more mindful of can be sometimes more my problem is overeating um mm-hmm. so I need to and I'm a bit of a fast eater at times too so uh-huh. <laughs> concentrating on eating a bit a bit slower as well then I realize that I am full and I yeah. can finish yep and more of a night time as well I'm quite a quite a sweet tooth so just being more mindful around that and substituting little bits in instead of others to make mm-hmm. it yeah a bit better for myself I also really like green tea, so I find that if I am getting a little bit peckish, I'll go for a green tea first Mm -hmm. because maybe it's just a boredom thing, Mm. particularly when I'm at home. So I'll go to that first and then if at the end of that I'm still hungry, then I'll go for a snack. But, yeah, that was sort of one little thing I would sort of switch in just to make sure that, yes, I am hungry rather than, no, I'm just bored, I'm going to (laughs) eat. Yeah, yeah. And what about hydration? Is that ever an issue for you? Like I guess playing indoors in the temperatures are a little bit more controlled. Do you have to work hard on hydrating or is that something that actually you don't sweat too heavily and it's easy to manage? We definitely probably have it much easier than, say, like a marathon happening outdoors. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But also a lot of the time, majority, unless it's like a major international event, majority of the centres that we compete in are basically tin sheds. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So definitely have been faced with a few heat issues before and again with nutrition we sort of played around quite a bit to get ready for it. I remember one national nationals we were having in Murray Bridge in like January. So it was like 40 plus degrees. <laughs> yeah, every, every day. And so I did quite a bit of heat tent training prior to mm-hmm. it as well. And then with nutrition, we played around with like, they like these cool sort of slushy cups. So you can yep. put the Gatorade in and the cups were had been in the freeze and you just squeeze it and it sort of turned the Gatorade into a mini slushy. Oh. 
so that was really nice because then you know obviously you drink that and it was quite cooling mm. I had plenty of cool things in a little esky so at the end of sets I'd be able to go back and just you know lay it on the back of my neck or mm-hmm. um whatever it was to sort of try and cool my body from the outside as well yeah but like a, ta- yeah, like a towel or something like towel. that yeah yeah yep. yep so yeah through heat I understood the importance of being like having things like Gatorade substitute my like with my water as well yeah yeah cool and Do you find that there's much difference between Olympic table tennis and Paralympic table tennis just in terms of the, I don't know, the the way the tournaments are run or, you know, the level of competition? To be quite honest, no. I think the biggest thing is regardless of if it's an able-bodied event or a para event, everyone's turning up with the aim to play their best and Mm. try and win. So ultimately... For me, that, that's the same and regardless of who I play, whether it's able-bodied or para, I still want to try and win. So I'm not I'm not seeing that, that different side of things in terms yeah. of the way tournaments are run. There's obviously little elements that need to be different to accommodate for para-athletes, but in general tournaments are, are the same as the able-bodied as well, which is really good. Mm. And so... Have you had any specific nutrition challenges that you've had to face over the years? Not not so much really. I think the biggest one and the one that I found quite fun to play around with was the the heat training with nutrition placed as well. So for this mm-hmm. this nationals that we knew that were coming up and was going to be really hot. And I mean, I got through that entire tournament like perfectly comfortable with being in the heat so I think that was a that was a very big win for us Mm. and then outside of that as well probably just again being aware of a lot like playing around with my sort of body composition as well and finding Mm. that range that I like to compete at where I feel strong and fast and being able to sort of I guess have that ready for competition was a you know it's just sometimes it's quite difficult because you know we didn't always get it right um Mm. but yeah I think through trial and error we we found where I like to sit at and yeah so that I guess you know I wouldn't say it was a huge challenge but it's definitely adds to a challenge until you figure it out for yourself and how long did it take to figure that out like I imagine you started playing when you were pretty young in terms of at that international level and you still did you still have some like just general physical maturity to go through initially you know as a youngster and then you know how long did it take before you could get to that point where you understood what the best body comp was for you yeah it it definitely took quite a while to be honest because yeah like when I I guess when I first came into the VIS and also being an individual scholarship holder as well so Mm -hmm. I'm not, I wasn't a part of a program where they kind of already had, you know, ideas of, you know, ranges that they're athletes to be in or, you know, where the nutrition, the nutrition automatically is keeping up to date with the strength and conditioning side of things. Mm-hmm. So I, being an individual athlete, it's, it was sort of 
more on me to sort of run my own ship and Mm -hmm. in one way that's really cool but also when you're quite young to try and you know navigate that and remember oh I need to make sure I've passed this information on to this person get this person in touch with this person can be Mm -hmm. quite difficult or even just you don't know what you don't know right yeah (laughs) until I fully understood the importance of having my nutritionist involved with my strength and conditioning coach you know, the benefit that I would get out of that. So it definitely took a while before I sort of got everything running together, but it's just, yeah, so critical that everything works like a fine-tuned car, Mm. you know. (laughs) When I'm going through a heavier gym session, I need to make sure that my nutrition's in line with that, but then also my on-court training understands that I might turn up a little bit more tired or a little bit more sore, but that's okay. Yeah, so, I mean, it definitely didn't happen overnight and would I say now I still have it perfect? No. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, pretty close to, I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a work in progress. <laughs> yeah, always. always. Yeah. Cool. So, Millie, do you have recommendations for other athletes, potential para table tennis players, any recommendations on how they might get into the sport or you know things that they just little tips for them I think first of all if they wanted to give table tennis a go I'd definitely be encouraging that and just searching for your local table tennis club basically and Mm -hmm. get get in the door that way and then and then whether you look into having a classification done from Paralympics Australia is another awesome way to go about it and see what sort of avenues you could go but definitely I think just get in the door first and start having a bit of a hit and enjoy the sport and then Mm -hmm. see where that can take you. And what about any recommendations for coaches in terms of table tennis coaches who may have a para-athlete that comes in the door and they've never experienced that before what what recommendations would you provide them? I think the biggest thing is not to be afraid of Mm -hmm. a para-athlete in the sense of thinking that they're not going to be able to help or it's going to be too hard because, honestly, I think the the more people that can understand how to work with and find the, you know, unique things about particular para-athletes are only going to be able to help them when they're developing able-bodied athletes as Mm -hmm. well. So I think it's every human being is unique Mm -hmm. and I think regardless of para or able-bodied, just helping that individual improve and have a love for the sport at the same time is is Mm -hmm. really important. So I think embrace it and, you know, find enjoyment in that challenge of trying to improve the athlete. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you mentioned that in terms of practitioners, it was important for you to get your practitioners talking to each other. Any specific recommendations outside of that that you would have for practitioners who are working with para-athletes? Not not so much. I mean, they're, Mm -hmm. they're definitely the professionals in, in their field and have helped me incredibly beyond words like I definitely wouldn't be able to become the athlete I am without them but a lot of that was due to you know the ones I've worked with took their time to really understand you know my sport they would come 
to the stadium, they would watch. And mm. I think that was a big thing too because a lot of people can have a perception about what they think a sport is like and what's mm-hmm. involved in it by their own, you know, thoughts. But then actually coming into the stadium, seeing us in our own environment, how we train, what we're doing, yeah, the intensity that everything's played at, I think really does sort of change. And then by that can then make, you know, even better recommendations, I think. Mm, yeah. So, yeah, that, that's probably one. Yeah, cool. Now, I've just I just recorded a, a webinar with a physiologist, so I have a, a specific question around monitoring. Do you use any specific tools or, or methods to monitor your training intensity, your recovery? Like, for example, do you use a heart rate monitor? Like anything that you use in, in day-to-day practice to monitor how you're responding to training and, and the recovery process? Yeah, so I guess the main tool that our para squad uses is AMS. Mm-hmm. So it's an athlete monitoring system. So every day we input uh, what training we do, what's our perceived exertion rate. We also It also takes into account how many hours sleep we had, mm-hmm. uh, a few different things like this. And then also... Then you, then you sort of get it produces like a score I guess, okay. at the end of the day and then it builds up over the week depending upon how long and how many sessions you're doing plus the sleep and then recovery and everything like this. So you will be kind of have our own range that each week we should sit inside so you don't mm-hmm. want to be below it and you don't want to be above it. But also our physio gets an alert if we happen to have an injury or, you know, there's mistraining due to something that then – she can then email and check in or whether it requires a bit more of like an actual, you know, session consultation. But that's that's the main kind of monitoring that we have in terms of our load. I did at one point sort of play around with my heart rate in terms of checking in the morning first thing. Mm -hmm. Um, There was an app that I could hold my finger on actually and it would sort of give me, you know, the the rate in the morning Mm -hmm. and... By monitoring that, you could sort of tell when I, if I was maybe um, getting a little bit ill because yep. it would sort of be raised of a morning when I'd be waking up. But, yeah, outside of that, I haven't done too much. Mm. But, what, you know, that's something that has been a more recent addition to your training, I guess, toolbox. You'd something that you didn't have when you first started? Oh, yeah, no, definitely I, like majority of this, I, I didn't have much before I first started. Um, yeah. Yeah. And again, like they're not things that you need to be, for example, a part of the VIS to have. There's yeah. like little ways and little apps and little things like that you can find that can do quite a similar sort of thing. Yeah. And, and how do you find it useful? I guess in, t- in terms of the the heart rate one, for example, it's a great way to sort of then if you're noticing that the heart rate's going up first thing in the morning it could be that's an indicator okay maybe take it a little bit easier today or you know if you're ticking along fine you, yep no we've got a great day ahead for try and put in a good session mm-hmm. in terms of the AMS monitoring that's just a great way to ensure that you know we're keeping our bodies strong um, and it's the best kind of way to try and avoid injury I guess mm-hmm. yeah so that's also a really important thing because we want to be able to train at our best 
you know, as often as possible. So ensuring we kind of stay with inside a healthy range gives us a better chance of being able to do that. Awesome. And have you ever had many major injuries? Thankfully, touch wood, uh, not, nothing, nothing, too, nothing too substantial. I mean, our sport is very repetitive, so yeah. a lot of twisting and everything through our back. So occasionally, you know, it might be a, a, lower, a lower back issue or, you know, a shoulder problem. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, no, thankfully, I think due to the team that I have around me, they're across everything and, yeah, we've kind of found that nice healthy medium that, keeps everything a nice oiled machine I guess (laughs) Mm, awesome cool wow thanks Millie that's heaps and heaps of information that you've been really generous in in sharing so we really appreciate it I have one last question for you because I know that you've you've got some stuff to get on with what's your favorite food oh favorite food Mm. oh well, if I had to say in terms of sweets, it's definitely caramel fudge. <laughs> ah, I thought, it, I thought from what you said earlier that it was going to be something sweet. <laughs> yeah. so it definitely, definitely have to be caramel fudge, but mm-hmm. otherwise, yeah, I love, I love breakfast. So uh-huh. when I'm not at home having my overnight oats, I would definitely love to go out for brekkie having like smashed avocado and poached eggs or whether it's eggs and mushrooms or zucchini mm-hmm. corn fritters. Oh, yeah, breakfast for me is, is my favourite. <laughs> and and so what's what's the Millie Tapper special ingredient in her overnight oats? Oh, what makes it special? Mm. I mean, it's the whole it's the whole whole package, really. <laughs> you need all of it together. But for me, I find like my oats have a nice combination of everything. So, mm. like we've got we've got the oats in there. I've got chia seeds. I've got protein powder, almond milk, mm-hmm. and then that's the main bit that I like to brew overnight. Yep. But then in comes the toppings. <laughs> I, I throw I throw in peanut butter, like two fruits, uh, goji berries, the works. So wow. yeah, anyone that wants to give that a go, I highly suggest uh, giving it a try. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> Maybe you need to trademark your, uh, your, sp- your special overnight oats and put it out there. <laughs> cool well thank you so much Millie it's been fantastic talking to you and I've certainly learned a little bit more about you and and table tennis in the process even though I've actually known you for kind of kind of known you for a while so yeah yeah. (laughs) so yeah well done to you and and yeah have I hope this year's another big year and um, that we've got you've got qualification for both the Olympics and the Paralympics this year. So all the very best with that and thanks again for your time. Thank you very much for having me, Liz. <laughs> Millie has a really good approach to managing her body composition and her food intake when she needs to. She understands her body well enough and her time frames well enough and that's taken a while to develop, but I think it's a really good place to be in in terms of your nutrition. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and will share it with your friends and family. And I hope you join us next time when we talk to Nathan Doyle, who is a para swim coach.